Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Use that we are uh, studying. Uh, like methanol and ammonia for these vessels that already have the space, we can achieve uh, close to 80% emissions reduction on existing ships. Uh, so we, we, we believe that we have a, an important competitive advantage uh, to reduce emissions on existing ships. I think this is an important uh, goal that we have. As one of our, the world's largest sources of clean, firm energy, uh, nuclear energy offers this really, really useful base load, always on sort of electricity that can, when paired with electrolysis, uh, really turns production into a more similar sort of production to existing fuel production. Hello again, this is the Aronex podcast, a show that focuses on the developments and transformation of the maritime and ocean space. I'm Craig Eason, and if you don't know me, I'm a former seafarer from what seems a long time ago, who became a journalist, writer, editor, and now podcast host. On this podcast, we've covered a number of technologies and ideas, as well as policies and projects, that are focused on the decarbonisation of the shipping industry. Shipping, the backbone of global trade, is needed to give us the things that we want at a price we expect. But while it's a vital component of how we live our lives, it, like other industries and parts of societies, is under a lot of pressure to decarbonise. Now, decarbonisation in shipping is taking two distinct steps. The first phase is focused on doing something with the existing ships, and then there's the phase looking more, perhaps, at the new ships, the new builds. Some of these existing ships are large, very large, and quite young, meaning that they'll be sailing the oceans for many years. And at the moment, they nearly all burn diesel fuel, and this, of course, pumps out CO2 into the atmosphere. There are a number of technologies being rolled out to help reduce this. And there's wind assist propulsion, and I've covered this extensively in earlier episodes of the Aranax show, and I'll put a link in the show notes to some of them. But then there's other technologies to help ships get routed more efficiently. Some to sail at more optimum speeds and understand when hulls need cleaning. And then there's technologies that push air bubbles under the hull. Air bubbles under the hull, or air lubrication as it's known, has been developing for a number of years, and as the name suggests, a layer of small air bubbles are continually pushed under the hull to glide between hull and water, thus reducing the friction force that the ship and its engines need to overcome to sail forward. Less friction means less power needed on an engine and therefore less fuel and fewer emissions from the funnel. Now in Brazil, one of the world's largest mining giants, Vale, is also one of the largest charterers of large dry bulk tonnage. There are huge dry bulk vessels, and Vale controls a lot of them, and this not only leads to significant fuel use, but also significant emissions. The company now has an eco-shipping programme, as it calls it, and it's taken two extraordinary steps this year to set rotor sails on one of the ships and air lubrication systems on another. Both vessels are now trialling the systems, with Vale considering rolling them out to other vessels on their fleet that they charter. These two ships are the biggest yet to have either of these systems, but also demonstrates how charterers are influencing the shape of shipping. 
Rodrigo Bermahello is Vale's shipping technical manager. So I spoke to him and to Noah Silversmith, the CEO of Silverstream Technologies, which has installed the air lubrication system on the Sea Victoria, about the installation and trial. But I started by asking Rodrigo about the Brazilian giant eco shipping program and what that entails. About four years ago, we have established within Vale this uh, R&D program that we call EcoShipping. It's a program to position Vale uh, uh, in relation to the IMO ambitions and the Paris agreements and Vale on sustainable uh, targets that we have. Uh, and within EcoShipping, we have drafted a clear low-carbon pathway. Uh, and this uh, low-carbon pathway starts with uh, energy efficiency. We believe there is a, actually we have a first wave within Valley Vessels that the economy of scale, we have very large vessels and they have captured important gains. And we believe the second wave is related to energy efficiency. And this wave is not finished. Uh, there are a lot of energy efficiency gains to be captured. Uh, and these uh, energy efficiency gains, they will allow us to reduce the demand for fuel and then make a transition to uh, alternative fuels, low carbon fuels. So it's a very important step that we are, the energy efficiency gains. And based on that, we have uh, uh, scanned the markets and the, uh, the uh, innovation technologies that are under development to see what are the energy efficiency technologies that can deliver higher gains. Uh, and here we uh, match the allocation technology. I think there are a few technologies today uh, there are many, many, many technologies relating to energy efficiency, but not all of them deliver high gains. Uh, uh, and these are important ones that we, we, we must capture. So uh, once we have identified the lubrications, one potential technology, we have uh, reviewed um, the technology because there are different uh, ways to, to do our lubrication. Uh, and we uh, met then with Silverstream. We have a specific way to, to, to do that and one that has uh, a lot of data that were uh, uh, provided to us and were able to evaluate at initial, initial stage the technology and then starts our innovation journey. Uh, and we did a lot of uh, um, engineering on that. It's two years that we have been working closely together with Silverstream. We did, uh, once we have identified them as um, potential makers uh, for these solutions. We did a numerical analysis, various numerical analysis. Uh, we went to HSVA model basing in Germany. Uh, we have tested uh, in scale. Uh, first, we have tested the air release units in full scale in their cavitation tank. And then we have tested uh, the uh, in scale model, the full vessel with uh, air lubrication uh, uh, devices. Uh, to have uh, more precise uh, information about uh, uh, the gains that were available. And once we got that information and we confirmed this idea that was a technology with uh, high gains on energy efficiency, then we moved uh, to the pilot stage and, uh, well, all the fabrication of the equipment and styling on the vessel, that's the stage we are today. How would you look at the companies that you you chose. There's a lot of companies, a lot of engineers, there's a lot of startups, there's a lot of businesses that are clamoring for the attention of ship operators, managers, companies like yours, aren't there? And I'm sure if you gave everybody your business card, they'll be knocking on your door as soon as possible to say, hey, I've got the answer 
for all of your problems. Here's my silver bullet idea. What kind of advice would you give to companies that have got ideas and solutions? What kind of advice have you got for them before they even come knocking on your door? Uh, my advice would be uh, be prepared to partner and share information. I think uh, this is one thing that we got from Silverstream from the very beginning. They have partnered with us and they have uh, incentivized that we uh, go through all this process, numerical analysis and tests to validate their, their technology. It's very difficult uh, to deal with any maker if we are not able to validate their claims. Uh, and when we talk about innovation, we must uh, acknowledge that sometimes we are talking about uh, new theories or new ways of testing, and there is, a, there is some um, discovery to be done there. So it's important that they, uh, they realize that there is a pathway, there is a journey together to validate the claims so that we can finally move to the, to the real thing. So, so, so this vessel of Sea Victoria has now arrived in Brazil, it's left, I presume, it's, has it recently left the dock where it's had the system um, retrofitted, it had the tests done, it's now sailed, it's sailed, presumably, as it sailed towards Brazil, it's sailed in ballast, but you've able to test the system in ballast as it went west. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how those tests went and also about the responsibilities and role of the crew on board when you've got a novel technology like that? Yes, uh, this is the first leg, the first voyage. Uh, the system is working, but uh, we, we think it's very premature to have any results. Uh, I think we are adjusting the system and we are trying to reach the maximum performance that we aim. I think we did a very... Uh, 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 detailed work before installing and we have solid numbers and now we have to to take time to validate that. We have uh, assigned Lloyd's register for a one-year long-term performance assessments. We have installed uh, high-frequency uh, data collectors, uh, sensors, and uh, we'll have a lot of information to to, to process within this one year of operation to, to finally confirm and even um, uh, exceed the expectations that we have with these savings. So I would say that is, uh, for the moment we are very satisfied and we continue to work because innovation is just beginning. <laughs> uh, there, is a, there, is a long, there is a long way. Uh, in terms of the the, the work crew has to do, indeed, uh, dealing with new technologies that are challenges and, uh, of course, a new process to be performed on boards. Uh, one thing that we did that I also recommend to everyone that's in doing new technologies is to perform uh, hazard identifications workshops. We did hazard hazard workshops involving classification societies, uh, the makers, silver stream, shipyard, ship designers. Uh, ship operators, uh, P&I club, we brought everybody around the table, we have, we were uh, honestly enough to point all the new things and the possible problems that could arise from this operation and try to identify uh, actions uh, to solve that or 
to manage uh, the the new process. So all this is a is a list. There is a shared responsibility among all parts which one had to do uh, the actions. And now this is also in course of uh, implementation and test and reviewing. Let me turn to Noah now, because Noah, I've known you for a number of years now. I've seen how Silverstream has grown and developed since um, its concept. I was talking to you at the time, just before you had the first system installed on the Amelia Borg. How many systems have you now got on board vessels or contracted on board vessels? As of today, we have 59. Uh, we provide a solution uh, both to new builds and we are the only one that's doing retrofit solutions. Uh, the retrofit solutions are extremely important uh, with new regulation on CII and uh, EEXI. And, and we are at Silverstream very focused in providing a product to help the industry, help owners that otherwise would have stranded assets and try and uh, make, make them able to and, and have them give them a license to, to, to basically sail after a 2023 uh, regulatory environment. So it's a very important part of our strategy to do so, and we are scaling up a part of Silverstream's business just to do retrofit fleet deals. And that is, of course, something we are looking to do with all our, well, uh, currently, I think we only really have tier one owners. If you look at uh, Val, uh, Carnival, Shell, and, and so on and so forth. But it's something we are looking to uh, be able to service uh, the, the, the whole industry, whether them being whatever you how do you want to create them in tiers. Uh, but we're also working with new built uh, designers, new built teams, new built programs. And, and, and that's another way for Silverstream to be able to, uh, 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 let's say, affect the market more. So, yes, recently, uh, I mean, uh, three years ago, we did our first fleet deal with uh, Grimaldi, which was 12 vessels. And then uh, most recently, we did a fleet deal for Shell last year on a number of LNG vessels, which you can see on the website, which has got a lot of potential options attached to it. And, 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 and then we have just now been involved in a lot more activity in 2021, which is not yet published. Is, is installing a, a, a system, retrofitting a, a system, is, is that likely to be a, a lengthy process with each installation needing to be bespoke for this particular vessel designed around the vessel, the number of air compressors? that need to be installed on board, um, the positioning of where the air bubbles flow out from under the, under the hull. Have you looked at how you can actually increase, or sorry, shorten the, the period of um, design and installation of a system? One of the work streams we're currently doing at uh, Silverstream is that we have a whole standardization uh, program. So that means that we are working now with um, a fixed set of compressor types and and standard systems. So if you tell me that you have a certain vessels, we are able to respond very quickly. On single retrofit installation, we can, with six-month notice, install that. Clearly, we would like to have a bit more time available to us so we can resource it properly. Uh, but we are we are now ready for a client. If a client is coming to us today and wants to do 40 retrofits over a period of five years, 
that is something we are currently set up to do. When it comes to insurance of, of new technologies, I, I realise with with fifty installations and no incidents, there's a there's a certain pedigree that you're building building up here. But always the installation of new systems um, onto ships, and perhaps I could take this question to Rodrigo. Putting a new system onto a ship, when you go to your insurance company, they're going to look at you and think, okay, what's the additional risk here? Could you tell me a little bit about any conversations you had with the insurance companies to explain to them what it was you were doing and what it entails? Yes, sure, Craig. Uh, yes, we have involved uh, P&I Club from the very beginning. Uh, and of course, uh, we have covered the new technology and uh, have ensured some aspects of this new technology on board, on our coverage. And as I have mentioned, uh, we also brought uh, the PNDI Club to discuss together with the other stakeholders potential risks that were in the project. So they were uh, around the table when we did the Hazid workshops, and I think that was a great partnership that we had uh, with the Steamship uh, PNDI Club. Um, they were very cooperative, they brought good insights, and I think this is building also a a relationship that's needed, uh, cooperation that's needed when we talk about uh, new technology and innovation. And you've um, you've said that there's the potential for these systems that you're installing now, the the air lubrication and the um, and the the rotor sail system for them to be installed on other ships as well. Have you have you discussed that further? Have you got a timeline for when that might start to happen? Um, yes, uh, um, as I have mentioned, we have this low uh, uh, carbon pathway for shipping, uh, and energy efficiency plays an important role uh, to demand the fuel consumption. Uh, uh, maybe uh, you are aware we have a lot of very large ore carriers that were designed as LNG ready. So 77 of these vessels, they were designed and built uh, to future retrofits of uh, LNG system. So they have uh, compartments, uh, dedicated compartment for uh, LNG fuel tank for a round voyage. Uh, and within our program, we are working to develop uh, other fuels for this space to, to turn into a multi-fuel compartment. So we have a project for a multi-fuel tank, one tank that could store ammonia, methanol, LNG. This is an important piece of our strategy. Uh, and uh, the technologies here, the air lubrication and also the rotor sails, they were uh, designed on these vessels, uh, very large oil carriers. We have uh, selected one Guayba Max uh, vessel that's 325,000 tons dead weight. Uh, there are 47 vessels of this class, uh, and there are 60 plus vessels in the Valley Max class, uh, 400,000 uh, dead weights. Uh, these technologies, the way we have designed them, it's very easy to escalate uh, the the system here to to all the all the vessels we are talking about. So, so but it's a question at first to to validate the results. So we go we will go through this uh, one year assessment to validate and refine the solution. Uh, of course, uh, 
we don't we uh, have expectations to exceed uh, the the results that we have and i believe that the technology will improve and we can in the future have better gains so the pilot is for that as well uh, and once we we are comfortable uh, with these um, gains that we can have uh, they will allow us to go for a more uh, um, let's say comprehensive solution on installing energy efficiency equipment on vessels, reducing the demand for fuel and going to alternative fuel solutions. And the fuels that we are uh, studying, uh, like methanol and ammonia, for these vessels that already have the space, we can achieve uh, close to 80% emissions reduction on existing ships. Uh, so we, 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 we believe that we have a, an important competitive advantage uh, to reduce emissions on existing ships. I think this is an important uh, goal that we have. That was Rodrigo Bermelo from the Brazilian mining giant Vale talking to me about the company's plans to reduce the emissions on the giant bulk carriers it uses and some of the technologies that they're using to achieve it. And in terms of future fuels, I was particularly interested in the idea of a multi-fuel tank which can be used on board for different fuel types as shipping moves into its next era when fuels like methanol, hydrogen, ammonia and biofuels will rise. The discussion about future fuels is a heated one and there are proponents shouting louder and louder about specific solutions. On a personal note, I don't see why one fuel should win over the other just yet. Different markets and different regions may have different answers, but one thing is for sure, there's going to be a need for more of it to be made. If we assume that part of the shipping industry will require green hydrogen and green ammonia, which is made from the hydrogen, then industry needs to look at how the electricity is sourced. The most talked about sources are green electricity from wind power or solar power, possibly wave and tidal in the future too. Then there's the debate about the value of blue hydrogen and whether this is the transition to green. Blue hydrogen is where the hydrogen is made through steam reformation and the CO2 generated is recycled or stored through CCS. But a recent paper in the US has pointed to another source of electricity to make hydrogen, nuclear power. In the US, a lobby group, the Clean Air Task Force, issued a paper last month suggesting that as nuclear power generates baseload electricity, it's an obvious source of power to make hydrogen for society. Nuclear power stations already use significant amounts of hydrogen in their chemistry and water cooling, but this is currently sourced through the steam reformation process of natural gas. There are now trials in the US and proposals in the UK to develop hydrogen from nuclear power and use it specifically in hard-to-abate industries, such as shipping. The Clean Air Task Force paper was authored by its nuclear power expert, Brett Rampol. I got in touch with him and I asked him about the nuclear industry in the US and its existing use of hydrogen, how this is set to change, and the first demonstration projects. The reactors, nuclear power plants around the world that use hydrogen in their operations are, are usually sourcing that uh, steam methane refined hydrogen uh, in, their, in their operations. Right now in the US, we have uh, multiple demonstrations, four demonstrations announced, the one where the location has you know just recently been confirmed by Exelon of nuclear hydrogen electrolysis demonstrations supported by utilities in the Department of Energy. Uh, the Exelon demonstration is going to be at the Nine Mile Point uh, nuclear reactor, uh, nuclear power plant, excuse me. And 
the existing power plants use the hydrogen in chemistry control in their water in, in, in some reactors and in others they use them to uh, cool the generators so keep the generators cool so that that is a, a not an insignificant amount of hydrogen being used by the existing reactor fleet around this country and so that's why a lot of these utilities and the Department of Energy is looking at the opportunities for sort of pairing the existing user which is also a clean energy generation source to produce the commodity that it's using and the paper also alludes to a more advanced sort of electrolysis technology that's currently being studied and researched and even demoed in some places. Um, and this high temperature steam electrolysis technology also tends to lend itself very well to uh, nuclear technologies with which can offer a high um, temperature steam product at the end of its or in its energy generation cycle. What, what's the, the benefit of building an electrolysis um, <clears throat> subunit to a nuclear power station compared to building it close to a wind power station or a solar panel? What's the, what's the benefit of the hydrogen in this discussion compared to solar or wind generated electricity? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the, depending on your region and your area, the option for pairing electrolysis with renewables pr might be you know, the best option for you. But for some regions or some areas, that just might not be possible for a area and density sort of need. Renewables, uh, while a great and growing source of our electricity in this, in you know, in this global economy, uh, they tend to be relatively uh, dispersed, not take up a little bit, a lot of land use. The opportunities for uh, nations or locations that are very reliant on marine shipping, such as Pacific Island nations or, you know, that all have land use need or problems, land density problems, um, would probably struggle to produce or build out the needed renewable infrastructure to support decarbonizing both their electricity and expanding to produce additional zero carbon fuel sources. So from that standpoint, it offers a um, different side of the, the teeter-totter on renewables there. And then additionally, um, as, as one of our, the world's largest sources of clean, firm energy, uh, nuclear energy offers this really, really useful base load, always on sort of electricity that can, when paired with electrolysis, uh, really turns production into a more similar sort of production to existing fuel production. Most fuel refineries and fuel production operations work most economically and efficiently when they're producing fuel, not when they're not producing fuel. So pairing electrolysis technology with an always available clean source of energy or electricity uh, helps support overall economic production of these zero carbon fuels. And in, in terms of the, the, the location of nuclear power stations, I may have this wrong, but most of them seem to be located next, next or very close to water, large water sources because of the amount of cooling water that they need. So they tend to be next to water, but I don't perceive them as being very close to ports. That question kind of, that point leads to the, if you, if you can 
get the um, hydrogen electrolysis located next to the nuclear power station. So you've got a that's your, what about that link between the hydrogen that is being generated or ammonia, whatever product it is, and the actual end user? Sure. Well, you know, in the United States, we do have some uh, existing nuclear power plants that, you know, are not located directly next to ports, but are located nearby. And the existing U.S. Uh, pipeline infrastructure is extremely robust, and the opportunities for either hydrogen blending or hydrogen injection directly into um, uh, dedicated pipelines for shipment and production or, or transitioning existing pipelines over to new operations with retrofit and upgrade, of course. Um, those sort of opportunities uh, lend itself well for a gas commodity like hydrogen or ammonia. And when you're also talking about the next step, which our paper talks about in terms of using ammonia instead of hydrogen, um, there is an existing ammonia transportation and production uh, market and infrastructure globally around the world. So the, the, the distance from a quote-unquote large traditional port might not be super challenging for an existing nuclear power plant that might be located on the, the Gulf of Mexico or along the Mississippi River if it could leverage existing uh, transportation infrastructure for one of these, you know, technology for one of these uh, commodity streams. The obvious question is really, why not just put the nuclear power station or the nuclear power unit directly onto the ships? The, in the U.S., there was the Savannah, and the Russians have got a large number of um, icebreakers been in service for many, many years, and of course they had one deep, one large container vessel kind of. Um, ice-breaking uh, container vessel that was is still nuclear-powered. I believe it's still actually in service. And then, of course, there's all the military um, vessels, both in the U.S. and Russia and elsewhere, that have got nuclear power plants on board. Some of them have got two nuclear power plants, I believe. And I know that this is a discussion that has also um, risen again um, in maritime circles about the option of putting some of the developing technologies for nuclear power onto ships and start and using that as a way to demonstrate um, cleaner shipping. How do you see that differing from what you're suggesting here in terms of creating ammonia and hydrogen for the shipping industry? Sure. And uh, just as an aside, an anecdote, the, uh, the USS Enterprise, the, 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 the Nimitz-class carrier that came out, actually had eight uh, nuclear reactors on it, I believe. So uh, some, of these, some of these aircraft carriers have, have multiple reactors on them. A lot of my original thinking began going down the pathway of uh, putting reactors on ships. But when we sort of looked at the balances and the pros and cons and, again, the time scales uh, for decarbonization, uh, you know, and where existing, you know, nuclear technology is used or could be used now – um, we don't see a world where long-duration sh transportation shipping becomes ultra-reliant on, um, at least in the near term, on, on, on nuclear propulsion on the ships because, uh, number one, there's ports around the world that are, are, are non 
nuclear areas and won't allow nuclear vessels and everything. So therefore, you limit your 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 access right there. Number two, there's liability issues for uh, operating a nuclear reactor on a ship versus operating a um, uh, a traditional or zero carbon fuel engine on a ship. Uh, you know, those liability issues can include security and proliferation as well as extreme cost liability issues. Um, and then you've also got a, a workforce and manpower concern. So the, the, the challenge is with looking at the existing marine shipping fleet and talking about a large-scale transition of all of its, or a majority or a large percentage of its um, workers to be uh, nuclear qualified or to work on a ship with new versus what they're used to, which is they're very well experienced professionals in fuel operations and and safe operations of marine engines. Those are high higher barriers than we thought in the near term for looking at an option like a zero carbon fuel, which is an easier transition, it seems. Um, and then in the paper, we discussed, like you discussed, icebreakers, a couple other niches where we think re nuclear you know, propulsion will continue to expand in shipping, like research vessels and uh, sort of those niche opportunities that in the near term really lend its wealth well to this. But for the larger picture, um, it just seems like a larger lift right now. Finally, I'm, I, I'm aware that back in the um, 60s, late 60s, early 70s, in, in the US, the military or one of the, the engineering corps or something like that put a nuclear power station on an old vessel and created a barge. They didn't power the vessel by it, but it was used in the Panama Canal. Russia has got its um, floating power station that's now active up in the, in the Arctic. China has got its um, a, a nuclear barge that it's developing, should be floating sometime this year maybe or operational next year. And I know that there's a couple of companies that are looking at nuclear power on a barge so that the nuclear power itself becomes mobile. Do you see this as being able to work alongside that hydrogen generation then as part of this process to create a much more flexible um, green fuel supply chain for the shipping industry? I think we see novel and uh, deployment and, 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 and novel deployment methods as being important and integral to the growth and future deployment or achieving potential of nuclear decarbonizing or supporting large-scale grid decarbonization or large-scale energy systems decarbonization. The, um, I, the mobility aspect of putting them on the barges, in my opinion, I don't necessarily think is the biggest driver for why they're, they're doing that. I think it's more a siting issue. If you can, you know, site the reactor offshore, it's a little bit easier in a lot of cases than siting it onshore, as you can imagine, based on experience that a lot of industries have learned for uh, offshore versus on, onshore siting in similar energy production technologies. So the, and if you look at what a lot of these barges did or are doing, they're being moved someplace and left there for a long time. So 
the Sturgis, the, the Panama Canal barge stayed there forever. The academic Lavoska, I'm sorry, I probably butchered the uh, Russian name of that, um, is in, in, a, 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 in a northern port located there for a long time. And I believe that's what the Chinese are planning to do. So I think it's leveraging existing shipyard building capabilities to kind of say, oh, hey, how can we commoditize these products better? How can we increase the manufactured content? How can we assembly line these things out? And then we can use the waterways to then transport them and then they have implantation there. So I think that does lend itself very well to the potential options for doing zero carbon fuels because then you could um, as you, you know, alluded to before, get them closer to those ports or locations where the users are going to be. That's Brett Rampol from the Clean Air Task Force talking about the idea of generating hydrogen and ammonia from nuclear power and using it in the shipping industry, as well as the growing interest in nuclear power stations on a barge. Of course, there is the other option of having nuclear reactors as a power source on a ship, and while this still faces a lot of challenges, not least political and societal, there are companies looking at this possibility. And the UK has now issued a consultation for a draft merchant ship regulation that would align itself with the IMO's nuclear code for nuclear ships. Well, that's it for this episode of the Aronex podcast. I'm Craig Eason. You'll find me at fathom.world, where you can read our stories on these and other topics. Please visit the site and subscribe to our newsletter. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app. And share this podcast with your friends, family and colleagues who are interested in the transition and transformation of the shipping and ocean space. Until the next time, goodbye.